0: Greetings, dear listener, and welcome back to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. I'm Nick Johannesson, your host, and if you're curious about the seasonal status in the Norwegian suburbs, I can reveal exclusively here that it is in fact raining again today. Still, what better time to brew a pot of tea and get stuck into a fresh episode of the podcast? As previously mentioned, I have set up a Patreon now so that uh, those who would like to support the podcast can easily do so. Of course, totally optional, and uh, all of the current 129 episodes are available free for all to listen to. Uh, I would like to extend a huge thank you to my first two Patreon supporters, Johnny Shortcut and Shady Vagabond. Kind of improbable names, but I do appreciate your support. It does mean a lot to me. I'm still workshopping what extras the patron might give access to, if any. If you have any ideas or see other podcasts doing things that you might be interested in, do drop me a note and um, we'll see what we can do. Okay, let's get cracking on this week's episode. Off to the end of the Silk Road we go. Hi, and welcome to Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Today, we're heading back to mainland UK, a little south of Sheffield, and we're visiting a tailoring academy. Prisa, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Yes. Hi, Nick. It's nice to talk to you again. Um, yes, we, we have um, launched our tailoring academy five years ago now in a little northwestern town in England. Um, Macclesfield, which um, used to be the centre of the UK silk industry, and is part of the textile triangle spanning from L- Lancash- Lancashire, so Manchester and Cotton, across to, um, to West Yorkshire where the wool mills are, the famous wool mills where some of the best fabric in the world is still being woven today, and then further south. Uh, to Macclesfield, where where um, silk was imported to from, from China. So we are actually officially the end of the silk world here in Macclesfield. And we still have more than 100 um, former silk mills in town. And one of these beautiful old industrial buildings is housing the Tailoring Academy.
0: So before we get into what the Tailoring Academy offers... Can we talk a bit about your background?
1: Sure, yes. Um, I am a, a bespoke tailor, a master tailor with a German training background. So I learned, I was an apprentice for seven years and um, learned from, from, a, from a master tailor, from someone who, who knows his trade, his crafts inside out. And then um, went on to, to work a couple of years in this beautiful field. Um, my first job ever was with, um, the first proper job after my apprenticeship was with, um, with um, The Phantom of the Opera. So the, the Lloyd Webber musical that um, premiered at that time in Hamburg. So this first job took me to um, that beautiful northern port city of Hamburg, and then um, I moved on a few years later. I moved on to work um, with um, bespoke tailoring house Tom Reimer in Hamburg, who um, who was at the time. Just starting out, but over over the years, became known as being the equivalent, really, to to uh, several row tailoring house. I then had to, um, for health reasons, actually, I was stopped in my tracks. I would never have done anything else than you know sitting on a on a tailoring uh, workbench and stitching away, if it would have been my choice, but. Um, Germany being Germany, if you have a, a a health problem, and in my case it was a a, a back that wasn't holding up to the strain, you're not just um, being um, you know on a sick leave for for a few weeks, um, but um, you're literally declared unfit for your job. So I would have ended up without health insurance and had to um, quickly decide what I I would do instead and that um, that brought me to um, an academic career so I started um, studying textile engineering um, really more specifically garment engineering in the in the mid-90s to to become an engineer and um I had two kids whilst in uni so it was all a, a very busy time and then um moved on from from hamburg where we were still living to um to live in Malta of all places so a small island in the Mediterranean. Where I didn't think I would, um, you know, be uh, be working in in my field, only to find that Malta um, was actually had been um, the first low labor cost country where um, German and other European companies had outsourced their work to earlier in that decade, so what I found there was a fertile playground really for me, lots of expertise, Um, I found uh, partners to work with, I found machinery I was looking for, so I started my first company there, which um, was producing large-scale textile toys. Which actually was the subject of my um diploma thesis. So I spent a couple of years producing these uh, known as soft play in in, in um in, in the Anglosphere, large building blocks, and um, supplied them to many local schools and and childcare facilities in Malta. But um I was missing I was missing even then um, my my craft bespoke tailoring. Um, moving on, a couple of years later, two thousand and five, uh, my family and I decided to um, to move to the UK, and um, once again, I wasn't sure whether you know. The textile industry was still alive in 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 this country, whether there would be any work opportunities for me at all um, but quickly realized that i couldn't it couldn't be couldn't have been further from the truth because um, well yes i I had um, landed right right in the middle of of where the textile industry had really been the powerhouse of the British economy for many decades. And um, only after a few weeks, I um, just by pure sheer coincidence dropped, um, bumped into someone who um, who turned out actually to be a, a fellow can- countryman, a German textile engineer, who was just um, relocating to... Um, to um, take on the technical department of um, of a large um, factory, in fact, a weaving mill, um, weaving airbags, high
0: um, <laughs> <laughs> of all things,
1: <laughs> high, really high 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 uh, tech um, industrial engineering. Happening right in front of, of um you know my my um my door. And um so we got we, we we got to chat and he said, So what are you doing? And I said, I'm a textile engineer, and he said, What are you doing tomorrow morning? And invited me um to a job interview. And it turns out that um textile engineers were pretty sought after he was looking for for development engineers in in the in the field of um, three-dimensional weaving and um and that was the um the vacancy they had to offer and i um i wasn't quite sure (laughs) whether that was for me but it was it was interesting um I was always interested in blue-sky thinking and, you know, trying to make things work and happen. So I, I agreed on, on the condition that it would only be for maybe a year. And um, seven years later and um, a number of um, patterns, related patterns, having to do with, re- with weaving technology for um, safety relevant textiles, so airbag, I um, I um, did move on. And that was simply because I wanted to um, finally go back and work with my hands. Engineering these days, I did learn, although I had a fantastic time working with a global development team for one of the well, really, the global market leader in in safety textiles. I just realized that our job really happens in front of screens for 90% of the time. Engineering Mm -hmm. has very little to do these days, especially when it is a safety-relevant product that we are um, producing has very little to do with working on the machine with the machine. It has to do with m- making sure we cover our backs at all time, and are, you know, safe, safe from when um, when something unforeseen happens, and uh, and um, we have lawyers maybe walking into the office. So. Um, it it just wasn't for me anymore. At that point, I was um, at a point in my life when children were grown up and ready to move out, and I had a little bit of of um, leeway to to change track. So, I did um, start my own small business, um, finding my first couple of bespoke customers. I um, even after all those years, 20 years, more or less, um, I hadn't forgotten anything. The muscle memory is just there. You pick up a piece of cloth and you know what to do. And um, so I I started working for these private customers and much enjoyed it. The only thing that I was missing really was um, was company. I was on my own. I was in in an attic room, you know, stitching away,
0: and I
1: can't um, and you know, was deep in in that flow state of um, of, of 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 that very manual work, but um, with very little um, people around. With very few people around me. I then um, started being interested in um, well I had been interested for a long time in um, in localism and in producing things um, with our own materials and our own skills so I looked into um, I mentioned the famous wool mills of West Yorkshire I looked into where that raw material actually came from for these quintessential British fabrics. Being surrounded by sheep, (laughs) I have to say, where I live in the foothills of the Peak District, um, they're not more sheep than people, but we're getting quite close. So my assumption was, um, quite naive as it turned out, that you know the wool that we're that we're using in these in these famous fabrics is is British. And um, when I looked a little little bit closer, together with our mutual friend David Evans,
0: Gray Fox, the
1: Gray Fox, we um, we found out that actually a hundred percent of the wool that's going into these fine, fine uh, suiting cloths is imported from around the world, from countries like Australia and New Zealand and increasingly China as well. So um, a project that we had planned together, which was to to create um, the quintessential British suit for him, didn't happen because we couldn't find that fabric. So it's important by, at this point to to make the distinction between a fine suiting cloth, so the material that we are using in in, in bespoke tailoring for a classic business suit, say, hmm. uh, and um, a, a, wo- a woolly tweed kind kind of material. Which is um, not always, but um, is occasionally made from from British wool. So that came as a bit of a shock, and um, yes, in a time where where increasingly we have to think about sustainability, it, it just appeared quite um, odd that we were we, we happily ship. This material around the world, especially because it turned out um, that we are we are we're not helping uh, our own industry, apart from you know the the, the wool growers, um, by doing that, because. Um, other processes or processes other than weaving which is still being carried out in the UK simply because it is a skill that is almost impossible to uh, to transfer to a low labor cost country you can't just put a, a loom in you know to, into a, a a weaving shed in India and that, and say uh, let's weave some some high quality uh, worsted um, suiting cloth most of the other processes, things like um, scarring, spinning, mm-hmm. dyeing, are being carried out in other countries as well. So, what happens, and this is what a BBC um, article brought to the fore, is um, the wool being produced in, in, in Australia, New Zealand, is then being taken, say, to China to be scoured which means um, washed, which uh, will include um, chemistry that um, is banned in this part of the world. And then we have uh, dyeing, spinning and dyeing processes being carried out in other countries on the way to the UK at a cost that would be lower than, than here back at home. And, of course, that means that we are undermining our own industries. As a a result of that, I found at the time, so we're talking 2070, that um, worsted spinning, which is the quintessential British invention, going back hundreds of years, actually, was no longer carried out in the UK. (laughs) So, um, I... I set out to ask the question, why are we not using our own wool instead? And the answer, of course, is the wool we're growing in the UK, even though we have dozens of different um, breeds of sheep and types of wool, is generally just not fine enough to weave these lightweight um, fabrics that our customers prefer. When I was an apprentice, so we're looking back almost forty years now, the uh, the typical weight for for a suiting cloth would have been around four hundred and fifty grams. and today that is easily around half of that weight. So we've moved from we've moved from you know a, a heavy, relatively heavy, relatively um, densely woven cloth that keeps us warm, uh, even, you know, without central heating, without the modern amenities that we're used to today, to a lightweight material that we can wear year-round because, yeah, well, we we are not typically um, cold. So the wool needed... Needed for these materials, for these um, high-spec, beautiful suiting cloths, um, comes from from the merino breed, which is um, traditionally grown in 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 the the countries that I mentioned before. However, historically. That was not always the case. The merino is a European breed, actually, and famously um was grown in Spain, where it was um the privilege of the king of Spain to uh to have you know yarn spun and then cloth uh woven for for himself and his court and uh, as a special privilege would would um extend that um favour to to other European heads of state. So the merino is actually not, does not depend on a particularly warm climate. And um, I didn't quite see the reason why uh, we're not growing these animals in this country. And um, very long story short, I found out that actually we do, um, or we did, I should say, years back. The British government um, decided to to look into just this, into the feasibility of growing Merino sheep in the UK um, as a means um, of supporting smallholders, farmers in Scotland. So that was a government project carried out in in the Scottish Scottish Borders region. And um, the result of that of that research project was the creation of a of a of a new breed, the Beaumont the Beaumont Merino, which is a cross of 75% Saxon Marina, so that's quite essential, um, breed that produces the finest wool in the world, and 25% Shetland, which is the, the British breed uh, known as you know Hardy and producing a fairly fine wool as well. So, um, these sheep. A flock of these sheep did exist, and I was interested in understanding why the project hadn't been taken further and um, where, if any, of the descendants of that flock still existed today. Never really quite got to the bottom of why the project was abandoned. I did read um, about funding running out couldn't verify that but I did find out that the animals still exist and after a little bit of searching a little bit of talking to to people who uh, knew this or that I found um, I found some growers still in the Scottish borders who um, who, who, who keep these sheep. Each flock not enough to produce enough wool to even think about putting it into, a, in a, into an industrial process. But um, eventually, there were five growers that um, had a loose kind of group between them. And um, I went to see them to, um, to ask if, if I could buy their wool to um to try and weave a fabric that literally is completely made in britain and um we we had the we had the conversation it was a long one five different scottish <laughs> farmers involved <laughs> but eventually they they agreed um and we agreed on a price, pretty steep price. It's pretty okay. special wool, and also I had to um, I had to take a certain risk because I was buying this wool in the Greece. In other words, it was not um, processed at all. It's it, as it comes off the the sheep's back, and that means that you don't, you're not, you can't be sure what what. The yield is B. In other words, in other words, how how much weight you lose in the scouring process or the, the initial washing process. It's Typically, between I believe it's between 35 and 50 percent um, of the of the weight is made up of the lanolin, the 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 wool uh, wax and uh, vegetable matter, so simply, you know, whatever the sheep pick up on on the field when grazing.
0: And other unmentionable matter.
1: Mm. True. Mm. Yeah, so so, so that it was a bit of a gamble, but I I was so hooked at the time, I didn't even think about the risk. And um, anyway, so I bought, I think it was, if I remember correctly, it was around 240 grams, uh, kilograms I bought, and um, br- brought that wool down. Um well it was first it was graded by by the British Wool Marketing Board in Gala Shieldsway in the in the Scottish Borders where there is a, a wool sorting depot. Um and it was graded at the finest finest grade available in in the UK. So that was the first um the first bit of evidence that I had for for really having, you know, um, a quantity of wool on my hands that was worthwhile um, taking this project further. And then I found um, I found in in West Yorkshire, I found producers who were willing to um, to send this wool through the entire process chain. Starting with a scouring, and I'll never forget how I was advised um, to not um, even think about sending this fine wool through the scouring process any other day than a Monday, because on a Monday they have a fresh liquor. So that's the, 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 the mix of chemicals uh, in the water <laughs> uh, that you know what that, that helps to to uh, to clean to cleanse. The uh, the wall, because it was so fine. The walls so of the fibers so fine, it wouldn't have withstood uh, doing it later in the week when you have you know all sorts of bits and bobs of contamination from from the from the earlier washes in there. Hmm. It was also um, to um, to retain the 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 very um, bright white color of the of the um, of the wall, which of course is important when you, um, when you want to move on and, and dye it further in the process. All sorts of things I learned, you know, lessons I wouldn't have um, probably been given anywhere else in the world. It's fantastic. Things like, you know, the, the softness of the water, for example, in, in West Yorkshire, which is the, one of the central reasons for this industry still being there and um and then um we produced um you know that first fabric made from from this particular wool grown in um in britain and called it the great northern cloth unfortunately it, it it couldn't it couldn't be um it couldn't be a worsted cloth are you familiar with the difference between worsted and woolen Long?
0: Worsted would be a bit harder because the yarn is wound or spun more tightly. I think.
1: Yes, yes, you're quite right. So, um, so the worsted process is is one that can only use um, long staple fibers, so wool like merino, because um, it involves spinning a very fine yarn. You wouldn't be able to do that with a short staple fiber. And that very fine yarn is then twisted to varying degrees. You might have come across these 100 numbers that um, you find on, on suiting cloth on 120s, 150s, 180s. And um, that number describes the number of twists in a yarn per meter. So the higher the number, the higher the twist, and with that, the livelier the yarn is getting. Just imagine you're twisting a rope and you keep twisting and twisting. It will, at, at one point it will start um, plying upon itself, right? It, yeah. it, it yeah. kind of winds itself um, around. And um, so that liveliness of the yarn is being used then in the, in the, in the worsted cloth. To, um, to create a certain, well, liveliness. It's a very crisp material, famously, famously being used in, in fabrics like fresco or cool wool, which are known to be um, airy, tropical-weight fabrics. Think James Bond on a speedboat. That suit would be a it. <laughs> But, okay. and because the, the fibers are so long um, they, you also don't have these funny little bits not funny, fuzzy little bits sticking out so, you know, not a tweed not a flannel, but a very smooth surface the final process, by the way, is fascinating for a worsted cloth It's um, it's being singed literally singed on a bed of open flames. Mm. So the cloth is being led over a bed of open flames to singe off any remaining little fibrins. And that gives this, this totally smooth and crisp finish. But to come back to my point, we weren't able to put our wool through that process because, as I mentioned before, worsted spinning wasn't available, wasn't being carried out in, in the UK at the time. I just recently heard, um, and I'm I'm quite interested in, in learning more, that worsted spinning is once again being carried out in the UK. So we might just try and do it again. Anyway, so we're talking six years ago, um, the Great Northern Cloth was born and um, I uh, put it in. I put it to a, a crowdfunding campaign, actually, because you know all, all the development costs, processing, and all that had to be paid for. And um, that crowdfunder turned out to be well. The campaign, in the end, ended up being six times overfunded. That's how wow. popular the um, the cloth was. We've all. Um, what we did do because we were thinking about rewards for people, so we en- we we ended up weaving scarves because that's a piece of cloth that people can actually wear around the, you know their necks. Yeah, and um, and uh, people just loved it. Just the idea to have um, you know that that garment that really was made in Britain, a hundred percent, including the raw material, and the idea was. Really, to prove that we can do it ourselves here, yeah? that we can do it a hundred percent, and I would have taken I would have taken that further, might still do, but it kind of collided at the time with my um with my idea to start training people in <laughs> bespoke tailoring.
0: Can I just ask where was the cloth woven?
1: It was woven. Well, <laughs> it was woven not in West Yorkshire, but the the weavers would, would insist that they are Yorkshiremen Yorkshiremen. So that tells you something about the about the location of the of the of the mill. It's not really in West Yorkshire, but um, the, um, the 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 owners think of themselves as being Yorkshiremen. <laughs> okay quite funny because yeah it's there's a lot of um i'm I'm not i don't even know very much about it but there's there seems to be a lot of of history uh in in there and and regions borders have been redrawn and people are now in lancashire but really they think they're they're still in yorkshire and with you know with, with that comes the pride of of these skills and these, these, um, production sites that were really fueling, um, the the British economy at the time, right? So anyway, um, cloth was woven, cloth was, was sold on, um, I kept a little bit back, so some of the actual cloth to, to make some suits from that, some, some garments, but um, at the same time, around the same time, I was receiving more and more inquiries from young people who wanted to train as bespoke tailors, but couldn't find anywhere where they where they were able to do so. It was really striking. Um, that really threw me back to my own apprenticeship years, when I really, to the horror of both my parents and my teachers, decided to go down that path. Because um, even in you know in the eighties, bespoke tailoring was um, deemed to be a dying art.
0: What was it that drew you to it?
1: You know, I can't really say all i know is uh, well what i can say there's no family tradition um but i no i i when i finished um school with my with the equivalent of of, of a levels i was um how can i say this i i had a pretty good um grades but i hadn't been working for them Particularly hard. I, I didn't feel proud of what I had achieved. Um, couldn't quite put my finger on it, but I knew that I had to do something with my hands. It had to be tangible. And um, I wasn't particularly interested in fashion. In fact, I wasn't interested in fashion at all. Um, it wasn't about you know the next big uh i don't know a trend or anything like that i i just i was i wanted to put myself through that apprenticeship thing Re- you know really learning from scratch and um and producing something uh tangible and uh, and um something that has longevity Yeah and it did me you know I I was um I, I did cure myself from from that um idleness you know <laughs> Anyway so um yeah so where was I I was talking about people wanting to do the same many years later and in, in a different country so lots and lots of young people particularly Got in touch and told me some stories about how they tried this or that, but how there always seemed to be um, one element missing, and that was the the actual um, well technique is what I would put it. The real skill, you know, the 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 methods that we use to 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 create these. Garments, and uh, they seem to be shrouded in mystery and secrecy.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. People might have gone on internships, you know, spent, invested their time to to learn some of these skills, and and hit a brick wall at some point, and just weren't let in on, you know those secrets and um, others had gone on university courses and found themselves writing endless essays on the history of fashion, but not really getting into the workshop, not really learning how to to create things from scratch. So um, the cutting pattern. It's, you know, like the architect's um, plan. I had learned to actually construct these patterns myself based on on individual measurements back then in my in my apprenticeship. But I I realized that that wasn't part of the education here in the UK. So that means um people on fashion design courses and, and costume uh design courses didn't learn how to create these really profound um drawings the 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 plan that our work is based on themselves they um, they didn't receive that that um, skill during during their three years worth of education, which I found pretty shocking. Mm. It means that um, you 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 have to fall back. You have to work with um, prefabricated pa- patterns. Um, Blocks that um, these these fashion departments have, but um, where there where, where there is no um, there is no real knowledge transfer happening. If you know what I mean, there is no um, provenance. They, you don't know where they came from, and they won't. They won't give you a result that is truly individual for 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 you know a, a person and their measurements and their their figure and posture. So that seemed um, not quite unfair actually for someone who is investing that much time not to be given these quintessential skills. And um, the other the other factor, of course. Um, where where those traditional tailoring skills which um n- not very many people have and um and, and those few people who do who um famously are all clustered around one particular address in in London <laughs> don't seem to be passing them on so freely um so that's that's where I was at the time, and um, I thought, hang on a second, I um I have these skills, I could pass them on, and um, inquired about you know what qualifications, what, what what is out there, how does the apprenticeship system work in this country, um, and found that um, found that yes, there is a, an apprenticeship standard um it, it's at, at level 5 which within the british educational system means it is actually ha- higher education um on par with um the first year in university and um i also found out that there were practically no apprenticeship uh sorry apprentices doing that Um, two- or three-year course. And um, I also learned that at the same time as the apprenticeship standard was launched, the qualification, so that's a standalone qualification where you are not required to have an employer who puts you through an apprenticeship, but can individually... Autonomously learn these skills had just been launched, and it was launched by the UK. Fashion and Textiles Association in um, collaboration with the several bespoke association. So it came, it was designed and developed by the very you know people who are at the heart of, of this traditional craft and um who um you know had agreed amongst each other to 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 write this syllabus, so that's what I was interested in, and I wanted to find out whether I would be able to deliver it, not being based you know in in the capital, let alone on on that famous road, so um I contacted the um, the awarding organisation of the qualification and asked, you know, how how I could possibly um, deliver it, and then um, learned all about, you know, accreditation and what it takes to <laughs> to get there. What what uh, I would, the, you know, the hoops I would have to jump through, the 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 bars I would have to meet. And it looked pretty daunting, Um, and not surprisingly, because we're talking about a government-regulated qualification. Yeah, so I had to, I had to comply to to the government's rules um, to be able to to deliver it. But um, I thought, just you know, give it a try, and um, and ended up spending the next half year more (laughs) or less full time. Um, generating and providing documentation for this accreditation process. And it was really... um, In the end, it came down to the fact that I have a dual training background, you know, and can cover both the craft and the engineering side of things. So... You know, came with a with, with a good knowledge about things like quality management. How do you um, how do you organize yourself so that the product is actually um, sure sure to be of high quality? But also, you know, able to cover all of the um, the the traditional craft aspects, including both. The elements I spoke about earlier the the, the, the hand skill the craft uh, technique and the um, the pattern construction side so the more the planning side of things um, so um, I was granted accreditation at the end of this process and then um, went through you know the, the process of, of of actually founding a, a company and um, was ready to launch my first um, Level 5 diploma course in September 2018. So that's five years ago.
0: Just out of interest, before you did that, what would have been a young person's, or any person really, their route to discovering this forbidden knowledge it sounds like it wasn't actually easy to become a tailor at all in the UK.
1: No, no. And interestingly, I just read an article today in French um, about a very similar conundrum in France where where it seems equally difficult to find an employer who will put a young person through an apprenticeship. And, um, and interestingly, I spoke about the Level 5 apprenticeship standard earlier, that was designed and developed um, to a large part by by you know those employers on several. none of them, however, has so far put an apprentice through that process they um, they have because of their strong reputation, because of their you know standing in the industry, they all have their own non-regulated Pathways. Each company, um, you know, decides whether they do or do not want to put apprenticeship, apprentices through the through the process, and um, have their own kind of certification method, which isn't regulated by a government. But of course, you know, it's it's very sought after. To my knowledge, however. There were only a handful of apprentices going through the system over the last five years. And um, when um, our first ever entry to um, the Golden Shares competition, which was was carried out this year, also known as the Oscars of the tailoring world, Nick, you might have heard (laughs) about it.
0: I have, actually, yes.
1: When she, um, after a year of training with us, became runner-up in that competition this year, so she won the silver shears. there was no one from Several near the top. So um, that tells you something about, you know, how few people are being trained up these days mm. and um how how the majority is not receiving their training in the traditional way now the traditional way of course is a it's a it's a deal you're trading as a young person you're trading your time in return for skills and um I did that myself. It was it was it was hard. It was not an easy pathway to take. Um, there's a lot of responsibility coming with it from both sides. Commitment <clears throat> needed, and um, I can only assume that that is n- no longer um attractive to employers that they um find it difficult to to commit for 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 you know what is at least three years worth of of training someone to to keep them on board and to go th- maybe through difficult times like we've just experienced over the last three years mm. um so it just doesn't seem to be happening very much anymore. Having said that, and without being able to say too much about this, um, I am together with a group of employers from around the UK involved in um, in uh, reviewing and. Um, Modernising, if that's the word, the level five apprenticeship standard, with a view to uh, making it more attractive, and that includes um, government funding may- being made available for employers who who, who are um, taking up that responsibility and commitment to um, to train up um, upcoming bespoke tailors, because. Um, the market is there. We need skilled people. There's a skills gap. So, um, you know, we, we, with that demand, um, there, there needs to be more training. There need to be more, more people um, given, being given the chance to, to learn these skills.
0: It sounds to me like the traditional companies, say Savile Row, aren't really looking to the future it sounds like they're sort of kind of just withering
1: yeah I don't Nick um, like I don't have particular insight but what I do know from own experience well first of all let me say it's a, it's a male, pretty much male dominated industry even though two thirds of the workforce is actually female which is why I was delighted to see um, at the Golden Cheers awards this year the three top Um, the finalists were female Um, so yeah that's a step forward Um, it seems to be a widespread accepted fact that um, these older craftsmen do not pass on their their skills, their, their company secrets to the next generation freely um perhaps that's partly understandable because um it is a competitive industry, if you want to call it industry. Um you know who who if you don't pass on your secrets to to your to your employees, if they decide to move on, you know, they can't take your your sacred knowledge with them. That's what I um I sometimes think is behind that.
0: Yes, that's quite the conundrum, isn't it? Because if yeah. you're not teaching them stuff so they can't steal it when they leave, are they actually doing a good job while they're working for you by Yep. Yep. <laughs>
1: you're not I, I you're not wrong. You're absolutely not wrong there, Nick. Um I think it's uh, it's an unhealthy culture. If we want our sector to thrive, then we need to be to be generous and um, and and let let people learn what they want to learn.
0: So let's not dwell on that. It's two thousand and eighteen. You've hopped over all the hurdles, done all the paperwork, got everything sorted out, and you start your tailoring academy. How does that work out?
1: Well, it worked out. Well, it started really with um, with uh, a visit to a local uh, haberdashery shop, as you do, because okay. not, you know you always need some zips and buttons and, and all that. Um, the fen shop, as it's known locally, and um, casually asking w- whether they they would know of a place that would be available um, to start a school in. And I was just um, referred to upstairs where Bob the landlord, so the landlord of this ex-mill building, um, had just renovated the the, the attic floor, beautiful old... um, shop floor actually so it, it would have housed you know some some two dozen weaving looms in the past. So I walked up and um d- literally decided on the spot that's it, that's where we're going to start the school. And um and did. And um I started with um just two students joining me and an apprentice. Um, so this apprentice quentin is uh had is a frenchman who wasn't able to find um training he spoke tailoring training in france he is a, he's a robotics engineer by training and um and uh, we had met on Instagram just a few weeks before I, you know, decided to start the school. And um so when I thought about needing an apprentice myself, um I um I offered him that role and he he decided to to leave Switzerland where he was working at the time, um in an engineering role to to join me as just that. So he became my um my right hand over the years. He's still with me. He's now um tutor and um is teaching our students the ins and outs of, of bespoke tailoring. But to go back to your question, so we had I had two students and one apprentice to teach. And um it was pure joy, to be honest. It was fantastic to do to, to work with these young people for a year, and then we had our first cohort um, fully qualified um, in July two thousand and nineteen, um, and. By that time we had received more inquiries and more people wanted to do the same and join us. Quentin was still on his apprenticeship. So increasingly, you know, he was he was becoming more and more um self-reliant. But then we hit, of course, in early 2020, or rather were hit, by that global pandemic. And um had to um, without knowing what was hitting us, had to um, switch from practical skills training delivery, which was our whole, you know, purpose, to um, to trying to do that remotely, and uh, and we did, like so many other, you know, colleges and universities and training providers around the world had to do. And that was a difficult time. Um, having said that, a cohort of six students prevailed. Each of them grabbed, you know, the tools that needed, the weird and wonderful cushions and stamps and rulers and so on. Some of them were flying back to their home countries and then joined us, um, as millions of other people did around the world, on Zoom and um they qualified they all qualified um and went on to um to do great things and really since then we we've continued to work under pretty extraordinary circumstances um with two more lockdowns and you know screens put up around workbenches you felt like you were working in an aquarium we were well we had masks of course for for two years which just doesn't make um training delivery any easier but so um, yeah we it just you know we just somehow prevailed and um we're now at a point thankfully where we can not quite forget about all of that but where we can be quite free of of those all of those precautions and distinct to a big um college or university we simply don't have the resources you know to if we're only three staff here if 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 we would have gone down with COVID ourselves God forbid, you know, um, having to struggle with it for longer, as, as so many people have, we would have simply had to to shut the shop. But Fairly. we we haven't. So and then we moved on to bigger premises quite soon, which is where we are now, and um, we had full capacity for the first time in five years.
0: So what type of person is it that comes and where do they come from?
1: It's a very very good question. Um, Well, to start with age, maybe. I was talking a lot about young people. But um, we now really have the full range from 18 to um, 70 last year, one of our students joining us from from overseas, uh, Dwayne from Maine.
0: Mainly then, menswear on Instagram, I believe.
1: Exactly, mainly menswear on Instagram. He um, he turned 70 during the course. Wow. Yeah, And he wasn't... Um, he, he isn't an outlier. We do have um, students at the beginning of their career. We sometimes have, have uh, young... People who are so talented, so gifted that they join us before they have any other formal qualification in a related field, which is the entry requirement for for level five study. But, you know, someone who, for example, we had a student who um, joined us very young, having... Uh, Traveled, growing up, traveling the world um, on a sailboat with her parents. N- never really, you know, um, going to f- to school, but being homeschooled, and um, she had a sewing machine on board and taught herself how to how to make garments. So she came with so much, um, well, self-taught expertise that she was ready to join the Level 5. And um, many others come and join us after after three years' worth of university study. So you were asking uh, for the typical student. They would be fashion or costume design graduates who um, know that by adding the, um, the Bispo, the heritage hand skills and the pattern construction knowledge to their skill set they have um, you know the ability to um, well first of all they can they can be very flexible in in, in a traditional design job they um, they don't have to rely on on pattern cutting done elsewhere or let alone a stock of block patterns that um you know they can only manipulate um or modify but not generate themselves but also um they can be their own people so you know if you have the full skill set you can just if you want to walk away and and start your own business rather than having to um to look for employment, and that's um, where the the other demographic comes in. We have we do have students who are who are, have, have actually retired from their careers, who who are at what would have been the end point of of their um, active working lives but who um, decide they want to learn a new skill set and at a professional level. So, you know, that might be former hobbyists, people who have been um, sewing for years and just want to take their skill sets to the next level. Sometimes we have academics who who are interested in perhaps uh, doing more research go on and write PhDs about, you know, her- heritage um, craft. So it's a wide range of age groups and backgrounds, but interestingly what they all have in common is that engineering mindset that we mentioned initially, and that I find really interesting. Um But if you think about it, bespoke tailoring—what is it if not engineering with flexible materials? We're starting out on the flat plane, so with a two D drawing that we use to to cut um, a flat piece of fabric. And then we we turn we turn that material into a into a three dimensional garment that um, is shaped to fit the um, the wearer. And um, well, it all starts with maths. Yeah, you you use mathematics to to create that pattern in the first place, and everything. Is uh, there's a logic to to every process step, um, and um, last but not least, and this is maybe a an unpopular opinion, um, efficiency comes into this, of course, as well. Yeah, by which, by the way, I don't mean speed necessarily. You're an engineer, you know. You know that efficiency is not just about doing things fast, but it's about doing things in a structured way, being organized, um, and, um, you know, avoid errors and mistakes on the way by doing so. So it, it looks as if and this is by the way interesting from a personal point of view as well because i told you i was a chaotic student in my very early years and wasn't <laughs> you know organized enough to even do my homework but now this is really important um to what we're doing here we we, we teach a whole lot of skills in what is a relatively short time and to be able to do that um we need to we need to take that structured approach, which is unpopular. Perhaps to those people who think of bespoke tailoring as this mystical um, wizardry, this you know this 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 skill that only a few chosen people
0: that, that forbidden knowledge again
1: master, yeah. So yeah, it, it isn't. You can you can learn it, and it helps to have um, to 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 be friends with maths. To not you know be afraid of using logic, and and to be to be organised in in your approach. Yeah, they, these days when people are applying and they, we have interviews, um, this is one of. Two questions I ask everyone: How's your relationship with maths? And the other one is: um, Do you enjoy the um, that flow state of mind when you're just working away for hours and hours and hours and hours, doing repetitive? Stuff, right? We do a lot of that. We spend days stitching away, and uh, by hand. And if if that's if if someone doesn't find that enjoyable, then they're not um, looking for the right for the right um, skills. So as a result, even though our workroom is now at full capacity. With um, fifteen people, fifteen students, and, and three tutors, it's it's typically it's really quiet. It's almost eerily quiet in there. People that
0: sounds just, lovely.
1: Yeah, they're just working away, and there's no radio blaring in the background either. And they're all allowed to have a chat. Don't get me wrong, but um, they seem to be. Quite happy you know just doing what they love doing for hours on end.
0: Mm. Uh, you mentioned that some of them come to hone their skills and this is a flippant question I know but do any of them express an interest in joining the sewing bee afterwards so that they'll come in as really very qualified sewers?
1: You mean any of our graduates? Yes yes. You know what, Nick, I have to make a confession here. I've never watched The Sewing Bee. <gasps> so, Gosh. and that's not out of, you know, I don't want to be coming across as dismissive. I simply have, and this sounds bizarre, but I haven't switched on the television in five years. I was about to say
0: how sad you've not seen The Sewing Bee because it really is a lot of fun, but then not mm-hmm. having watched television for five years it does sound very, very nice.
1: Yeah, I I intend to change that. Um, so I've promised myself to take it a bit easier now that we, you know, are kind of established. It was just a a lot of work to get to this point. Gosh. So I've not I've not watched any, um, and I wouldn't. I don't know. Um, I I don't really know whether someone who's who's been learning bespoke tailoring is. Would make a good candidate for the sewing bee or not? I, re- I simply don't know. You tell me. I'm just thinking
0: that efficiency, having the hand techniques, it sounds like it'd be a confident person to have on. But I don't know. I don't know. Uh, you did mention that there were few women in bespoke tailoring traditionally. Uh,
1: well, no. Uh, there are a lot of women in bespoke tailoring, but there are only a few women in leading roles, and Quite. that that has to do with the traditional split into two uh, skill sets. One is the cutting, and one is the tailoring side. But I interrupted you. Sorry, I shouldn't go off on a on a different tangent.
0: No, no, that was really the tangent I was heading down, <laughs> Good. because. I think you may are you sort of is there more boys than girls on the course or are, are your students more female?
1: Yeah, we seem to just follow the exact um kind of split. Um so 2 thirds female. Um students seem to be quite um typical. And that is a, a true representation of, you know, the the the, uh, the workforce in the sector but um, what seems to be happening is and this is uh, you know i'm 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 passing this on really on account of of the stories i hear from from our own candidates and, and students um so there are these two pathways and in fact the qualification that we're teaching which is based like i explained on the on on the um, government Apprenticeship standard is split into two pathways. You can either learn how to be a cutter or you can learn how to be a tailor. I don't agree with that approach. So everyone here is learning both of these things. Mm. They are closely inter- intertwined skill sets and I wouldn't even know how to teach either or. So that being said, traditionally in the British tailoring world, you are a cutter or you are a tailor. And in fact, you are even um, you are encouraged to take up a, a tailoring specialism. So you are either a coat or a trouser tailor or a finisher, actually. There are even specialists making only pockets. So that's where the um, the gender roles are coming in. The cutter is the... Um, customer-facing role. So the cutter is the the person who who um, who will welcome you at in a traditional tailoring shop, who will take your measurements and who will advise you on materials, on style, etc. And there is only there is there are only a handful of women now in these roles. Women traditionally have not been encouraged. To take on the cutting role, they have not been valued for their leadership, but for their willingness to be tucked away in the workrooms and patiently stitch away. You know, the fine hand skills, the famous buttonholes, and so on. Mm. And, um, well, not surprisingly, I don't agree with that either. <laughs> So um, everyone here learns everything. We, um, we, in fact, you know, we encourage um, with what we call our community tailoring scheme, our students to work towards the end of their qualification in their third term for an actual customer. So in other words, go through all of these roles, put all of these hats on and know how to do the job from beginning to end. So that nobody needs to be needs to get stuck, you know, in their career because they can only do part of the job because they only have one side of the set. Hmm.
0: Yes, that sounds like another reason why the traditional several row tailors might be withering a bit with such outdated practices.
1: I've had a. I've just been um, to the to to the Severo bespoke associations website, really, it, to see um, who who is now part of that association. I don't know whether you know, but you actually have to have an address on Savrol, or I believe, a hundred yards
0: around the corner.
1: Around the corner <laughs> to, to be eligible. And there were some time ago. I remember there were thirteen. Tailoring houses associated, and that included um, Catherine Sargent, who, however, um, is no longer on several. And when I when I checked the website just recently, there were just ten companies left, and all of them were represented by their respective um, chairs, and they were all they all they all men, they're, yeah. they're all men. So um, yes, I, um, I I I don't know whether that's that's really helping the, the sector to kind of block out fifty percent of the talent like that.
0: No. Now there was something I wanted to ask you about because I was reading a Swedish magazine at our local library recently, and there was an article in it about how the patterns used to create clothes, or basically the construction of clothes, has become simpler over time. And also, this is a, from a ready-to-wear perspective, the range of sizes have also become fewer. So, whereas 200 years ago, when you went to your village tailor and you had something made for you, it would probably fit you pretty well, most of the clothes we wear today don't fit us well at all.
1: Yep. Yeah, if you buy jeans, you, you're likely to have to jump two-inch sizes. So, between size 30 and size 32 ways, there is nothing, right? Yeah. Well, yes, that, that is, is so. And, um, of course, it's it's just another um is another effect of becoming ever more um well having to produce you know with ever tighter margins and um and and also of course because um man-made fabrics um allow so so I'm talking about addition of, of, of stretchy materials like lycra spandex and so on um, uh, allow um, f- flexible materials Material, wool cloth is also flexible but it's not flexing in the same way as you know, a jersey pair of leggings can so um, we don't have to spend so much time and we don't need to have the skills to actually make uh, a, a garment fit um properly even if it's not for an individual but you know for 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 a particular standard size anymore but we can take a shortcut and use um you know those stretchy materials or we can declare something um oversized or unisex or you know (laughs) something like that and and make it almost um seem, uh, you know, n- not fitting properly on purpose. And, yeah, it's, um, it, it is, is not a good thing. I mean, you asked me earlier, why am I actually, why have I gone into bespoke tailoring? Um, I didn't really think about it at the time, but, um, now I very much enjoy being able to be at home in my own physique, right? With all the the um, outlying measurements, you know, that don't um, conform with a particular standard size. So what I'm trying to say is really well-fitting garments, really well-fitting clothes, um No matter what shape or size I am, are extremely um, confidence inducing, right? It's basically it means to be allowed to be yourself if you have, if you can clothe yourself uh, in garments that fit you well. And one of the Things I observed during my years as a, as a bespoke tailoring company was that whoever walked in through my door, uh, whether men, women, uh, big, small, everyone would would say right at the beginning, "I've got to lose weight," and. I made it a principle of explaining to everyone that, no, you have not got to do anything, (laughs) you know, because um, it seems to be such a burden, it seems to be so much pressure on people um, to kind of, you know, conform with that ideal that we all all seem to have in mind for what... uh, how a male or female body has to look like and um so it's uh it's liberating it's libera- liberating is the word it's liberating to um to be able to wear what suits you and what fits you and what is um is is made for you and becomes part of you know your your being mm.
0: I can see how you might feel you have to lose weight when the sort of size range available to you is only five and you sort of feel like a medium, but actually you can only wear the extra large, which means that you're probably six to eight inches too short for the size.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: But what you're saying reminds me of, I've been asking a lot of people over over 100 podcasts now, uh, there's this idea that we must buy better so we have it for longer. Yeah. And I think a major part of that is having stuff that we really like because even though you buy something expensive, if you don't like it and it feels good, you don't want to wear it for a long time anyway. No. So the idea of having something made that actually fits you in a cloth you like, in a design you like, has to be a major step towards having something that you keep and love for a long time.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and be content with that and to know, you know, what is enough and not feeling under pressure to constantly having to reinvent yourself with with more and more um, clothing that is becoming disposable, dispensable. Yeah, it's... um, uh, For me, it's a huge part of, you know, feeling feeling good (laughs) feeling being able to be myself Hmm.
0: i also imagine that if you're not buying so much disposable clothing if you actually put that towards having something made for you that was actually good and fit you wouldn't actually be tremendously expensive
1: no, it would be interesting to work question. that out. <laughs> it, it would be interesting to work that out, maybe over a year or period of years. Absolutely true. Yes, and of course, everything we make here has um, has margins built in for future adjustments. Um, so I don't know if ten years down down the line you. Um, you start working out and become, you know, an athlete, then that garment needs to give way somewhere. Or the other way around, it needs to be um, taken in. In fact, when I I was an apprentice, there were still some older customers who brought their suits in for turning. That's the only way I, I... I know how to translate that from the German. And I didn't first get it, but it literally meant um, we were tasked with taking these suits apart entirely, turn them round, turn the fabric round, the fabric panels round, and uh-huh. put it back together again. <laughs> with, with the unused outer side, well, what was the inner side turned outside give it a new lease of life like that. And you know, it was apparently it was I don't know whether it was more economical or just, you know, affection for, for the garment and wanting to extend its lifespan span even further. Or maybe it's just sheer necessity because the fabrics weren't readily available in the 40s, 50s, 60s. But that's what what I spend a lot of time on in my apprenticeship.
0: Yeah. And today that seems completely mind-blowing. And how could that possibly be?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yes.
0: But I I see a similar thing with the Norwegian traditional costumes that Norwegian girls often get for their confirmation when they're, what, 14? Mm -hmm. And they're made for them. And these garments are hugely expensive with loads and loads of handwork and Expensive fabrics, and you're giving it to a 14 year old girl, and they're going to be wearing it for decades to come. A lot of them are twice the size after a while, so they have a lot of lee room built in, and they take them apart and they expand them, and so forth. That is clever thinking.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 also well sustainable thinking, right? Thinking into the future and allowing for for what the future might bring.
0: Yeah. Now you mentioned earlier, before well, leading into the Great Northern Cloth, mm-hmm. you mentioned you made something for David Evans, Grey Fox. Now I remember this because at the time it was such a nice garment, and he keeps bringing it out over the years. And every time mm-hmm. I'm thinking, oh, that's so nice." Mm-hmm. Can you talk a bit about that?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, um, so when we when David and I realised we can't make this. English suit for him simply because we didn't have the fabric. So we're talking a few years before the the great northern cloth was actually and perceived and, and, and woven. Um, we decided that it's not it's not going to be a suit for which we would have needed that you know worsted fine lightweight cloth, but. Um, a coat instead um made from a length of harris tweed that he i believe he was given or he he, he, he put, purchased maybe uh, uh doing a trip to to the outer hebrides so he had that length of tweed and and he had a photograph of um i can't remember actually whether it was one of his relatives or not, but someone um in a in a Norfolk coat uh with a with a dog and a bicycle, I think, and he was fond of that um both of the photo and of the of the the style of coat so um yeah, I made a a Norfolk coat from that length of of tweed for him, and then we took it even further. Um, and because we're in Macclesfield, and because of the silk heritage, and two mills still operating here, we had um, he had the opportunity to have the internal lining printed for him in a real silk, and he was um, he was able to pick his own. Design. So we went to see Adamley Textiles, which is the, the mill I'm talking about, which is just around, I can almost see it from, from where I'm looking out of the window. It's um, based in Langley in, in the Peak District. Um, we went to visit, and interestingly, we found out that um, Adamley owns the David Evans archive of of print print designs. So they have it's beautiful, an entire room full of leather bound folios, all bearing David Evans' name, <laughs> um, full of these designs. So that that was just lovely, um, you know that coincidence of the names. And then um, he picked, he picked. A little fox head as a design for his for his internal lining for for that coat, and um, Adam Lee were kind enough to hand print. So we're talking screen printing by hand. Um, a length of that silk, which which I then used to to line that coat. Yeah, that was nice. It was a really nice. Um, call up to do.
0: For the listener, Brita was gazing raptly into the air, talking about that. Clearly fond memories. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine that became a garment then that David would, in fact, keep and cherish and wear.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, this is a good example for how a garment and, uh, and an individual belong together. He also picked the... He also... Uh, picked some vintage leather football buttons for for that coat. So it was, yeah, it was entirely made from just beautiful materials, um, time tested and full of full of heritage.
0: And really fits him well, mm-hmm. as it should.
1: It does. I do want to revive. The great Northern Cloth. I have a I have a plan um, that involves one of the aforementioned Yorkshire Mills. Um, I can't name them at this point. Who um, who are kind enough to um, open their doors to uh, our students every year, so we can take we can take our students on um, on. On a mill tour, and they learn all about the um, the processes. So, my in my dreams, um, every year we would um, students would design a, a cloth. So we would have a vintage every year, designed by the class of twenty five, say, mm-hmm. of the Great Northern Cloth, which would be made from from Scottish merino in the West Yorkshire mill. And uh, and students would um, would would work with that cloth in in during you know their studies here. Wow, that's my that's that's maybe the next thing that we're going to do.
0: That sounds great. I was thinking while you were talking about what the problems with the sheep and where the wool comes from, mm-hmm. uh, when I was on the Hebrides uh, looking at Harris Tweed and I was seeing the black-faced sheep and I was thinking, wow, that's so great that these sheep make that tweed and all that. <laughs> and I was so disappointed when I found out that, oh no, the black-faced wool, that goes to the mainland, used for carpets. The, the British wool or well, from the mainland comes to the Hebrides. Yeah. And then you have the Merino coming from Australia. And then you have so much wool just being thrown away or burnt or yeah. discarded.
1: Yeah, well, there are, and I'm sure you are more than aware about it. Uh, lots of different approaches now to use wool to put it to good use, um, including mind-bogglingly in furniture, mm. um, insulation is one of the other uses, carpets, of course, and um, so there are some um, small-scale producers of, of of clothing made from from. British wool as well but you know it takes you need to be quite resistant <laughs> I I wouldn't be able to wear you know the wool on my skin I would find it difficult we're quite spoiled these days um, I think
0: yeah I think for thing I garments on the skin uh, I find that very coarse wool to be a bit uncomfortable as well. But for yeah. jackets and tweed and things, I mean, it's really good. I love the yeah. way um, you can use Herdwick sheep in different um, colours of grey and make a tweed that is sort of two colours, two colours yeah. of grey, that is.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. So uh, lots of opportunities.
1: Absolutely. And if you think about it, there are th- there are about thirty million, thirty-two million 32 million sheep in the country Um, So that's one sheep to every two people, roughly. It's quite a lot of sheep. And, um, you know, wasting that beautiful raw material is really... In fact, I'm sometimes... You know, these sheep are actually reared for meat, not for wool. But... um, But... Still... Farmers struggle because apparently it's still cheaper to buy New Zealand lamb as well um, than British. Plus, of course, I don't know whether yeah, I can mention this here because it's um, a political, a certain political development that men that meant that um, EU subsidies are no longer available to British sheep farmers, or any British farmers. Right. So if they would instead switch to uh, to sheep breeds that p- produce really high-value wool, um, that might be a way forward.
0: Right? Yes, I know here in Norway that um, uh, wool isn't worth enough to make it worth it for the farmers to deliver it to wherever they deliver wool makes it costs them more just to deliver it than they get paid for it.
1: Yeah, I mean, same here, you will have heard the same story from, from this country. But apparently the fleece isn't fetching enough to cover the cost of the shearing and I believe that's literally a pound or two, well, you know, not much mm. more than that. Whereas I paid for a kilogram so not the whole fleece, a kilogram, which is maybe a third of a sheep's fleece. I paid 10 times that. Oh. Um, in degrees, so, you know, with with only about half of that, as it turned out in the end, about 55% of the weight was left in the form of wool in the end. So really, I paid like about 20 times of what British wool is fetching.
0: Out of interest... Those 240 kilos in the grease, as you said, how many metres of fabric did that actually make in then?
1: Uh, you know, I can't remember exactly, but it should be pretty easy to work out. Let's quickly do this. Um, so it would—it was a medium-weight fabric, around 360 grams per square metre, which makes it one and a half times that per per running meter, because the loom width is one and a half meters. So that means... 360... Uh, 40 grams per meter finished fabric. 540 grams. So I said 200 and so that's... Um, 2 meters to the kilogram, yeah. So we should have been able to weave around 480 meters, which is not bad. That's a lot. Yeah, there's a little bit of wastage, obviously. Uh, You know, you need to make the warp first and the beam, and you lose some there and you lose some on the weft as well, but 400. Because we made it into scarves, partly, and partly into cloths I can't remember exactly. But it huh? should be about that ballpark. So it's absolutely worthwhile doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Brita. Are we, are we done?
1: I think we're done. Um, <laughs> I, think we, I mean, I, could keep, I keep on talk, can keep on talking for hours about what we're doing here, if, but I think if we've you, already, we've if you already may... done.
0: If you lie awake thinking you are on anything tonight, just God be able to continue yeah. tomorrow.
1: You know the other the other big deal for me last year was um, another accreditation, and that was um, because, of course, with Brexit, we lost, we couldn't enrol anyone from the EU anymore because of new immigration rules, and um, we have a lot of interest from around the world. Mm. And I had to turn down all of these applications. So I um, I tried to work out whether there's a way around it, and um, there is. And what, what I what we needed to do was become like the equivalent of you know universities in the UK um, can be student sponsors, so um, they can enroll international students because they um, they can show. That they comply with all the rules and regulations, and of course you've got to go through a, you know, a, a very stringent process to do that. I try to work out whether we can basically do the same, whether we can act as as sponsors like universities can, right. and um, the 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 long answer is no. Um, or the other way around the short answer is no but the long answer is yes actually um, <laughs> okay. uh, we could, we, but it involved another very stringent process of due diligence um, to become accredited to do that and that's what I spent most of last year on and it means that we can now enroll just like the universities do uh, people from around the world um, again legally and that's a really big deal for us because well, it means that we don't have to be narrow-minded, and you know, but can reach out to. Well, li- really, the bottom line is we can recruit, we can enroll the, the 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 best talent from around the world, and that's that's tangible in the workroom now. So, we've got people here who um, who have just moved from. New Zealand, from Canada, from the States, wow. from France, um, because yeah, they're looking to the UK to get that training that they don't find in their home countries.
0: That must make for such an interesting classroom environment with it's people fantastic. from all over the place and such a range. Yeah, it's
1: it's wonderful. It's you know, Duane was one of our first last year who who did make use of that and he he left his country for the first time in his life at 70. Wow yeah and um, it just means you've got so many different perspectives in the room so so many different backgrounds it's exactly what Brexit has kind of stopped in its tracks (laughs) stupidly and um, yeah but we kind of we we can have that again so that's rather lovely
0: that seems a uh, good moment to end on thank you so much for joining me today Rita it was an absolute pleasure
1: well thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to chat away for almost two hours
0: (laughs) it's my pleasure entirely
1: it was very lovely
0: bye bye for now
1: yeah, bye-bye for now. If you, if and when you're in the country, next.
0: And that was all for this week's episode. Subscribe to automatically download next week's episode as soon as it's released. You could leave a review on Apple Podcast. We'd really appreciate that. You can also do some sort of review on Spotify if that's where you listen. And uh, again, uh, all links and details are in the show notes. You can see them in your app and they also include a link to the new Patreon support if you like. I am very grateful if you do. Thank you and uh, catch you again next week.